Hello, my friends. I'm on the road today in Edmonton. I'm out here because we had a great premiere of our documentary, Ungovernable, last night in Edmonton. But I'm sticking around because this weekend is the annual general meeting of the United Conservative Party. That's the party that just elected a new premier of Alberta, Danielle Smith. So I've got some thoughts on her first few days as premier. And then I've got an interview with Drea Humphrey, who was just back from the World Health Organization summit meeting in Berlin. That's very exciting. Um, but before I get to the show, let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com, click subscribe. It's eight bucks a month. You get my show every weeknight, plus we have four weekly shows. Altogether, that's 36 episodes a month just for eight smackers. And we need your help because that's how we pay our bills. We don't get any help from Trudeau. We never take government money. We rely on you. So please go to rebelnewsplus.com. All right, here's today's show. Brand new Alberta Premier Danielle Smith is already in choppy waters. Will she sink or float? It's October 20th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Shame on you, you sensorious bug. I am back in Edmonton. I was in Calgary not too long ago when Danielle Smith was selected the leader of the United Conservative Party, taking over from Jason Kenney, who incredibly didn't even finish his first term as premier, going from the leading conservative politician in Canada, one thrown out by his own party. Danielle Smith squeaked out a majority. It was a ranked ballot system. In the end, she got about 54% of the party's support and uh, her closest successor, 46. Um, that's not a overwhelming win like Pierre Polyev had federally, but then again, there were seven candidates. Danielle Smith was also an outsider. She was not a sitting MLA, and it'll be tricky for her to negotiate being premier of a caucus that is not hers. Those MLAs were picked by Jason Kenney. The cabinet ministers were picked by Jason Kenney. Many of the programs that Danielle Smith has railed against were implemented by the very MLAs and cabinet ministers she now has to cobble together into her own party. It reminds me a little bit of when Stockwell Day succeeded Preston Manning to lead the Reform Party of Canada. Actually, then it was called the Canadian Alliance. Preston Manning never in a million years thought he would lose, and he couldn't stomach the loss to Stockwell Day. Again, an outsider who was not part of caucus, and soon there was a bit of a civil war against him. Danielle Smith has to keep that party together as she gets ready to fight Rachel Notley, the NDP former premier, who actually thinks she can be returned to power. It has been a choppy time for Danielle Smith. Now, some of that is expected. Of course, the media party hates her. Of course, the NDP war room and their proxies in the big labor unions hate her. Of course, of course, of course. But it's the same way for... Pierre Polyev federally, of course, the Liberal Party and the media party hate him, but he seems to be more ready for the battle than Danielle Smith has been. Now, I like Danielle Smith. I have had some qualms with her over the years, but of the seven candidates, I felt she was the strongest and the one who would be the most caring and devoted to Alberta's interests. I think that was one of the reasons why Jason Kenney failed as premier. Number one, of course, he enforced brutal lockdowns, including against truckers and against Christian churches and business people like Chris Scott. 
But also, he didn't stand up for the province of Alberta. I think Kenny was always looking for the next chance where maybe he would run for prime minister in five years. And so he was always thinking, what do I do now in Alberta? How will it look in five years when I'm trying to explain myself to the CBC? I don't want to be too Alberta first. I don't want to be too critical of Canada. So Danielle Smith, to me, met those two checkboxes. She was the most freedom-oriented of the seven candidates and the most pro-Alberta. So how is she doing? Has either of those issues blown up on her? Well, uh, you be the judge. The first thing was Danielle Smith made a statement in a press conference saying that unvaccinated people were subject to the worst discrimination that she has observed in her lifetime. Here, I'll let you see her say it herself. It was quite a press conference. Take a look. The community that faced the most restrictions on their freedoms in the last year were those who made a choice not to be vaccinated. I don't think I've ever experienced a situation in my lifetime where a person was fired from their job or not allowed to watch their kids play hockey or not allowed to go visit a loved one in long-term care or hospital or not allowed to go get on a plane to either go across the country to see family or even travel across the border. So they have been the most discriminated against group that I've ever witnessed in my lifetime. That's a pretty extreme level of discrimination that we have seen. I don't take away any of the discrimination that I've seen in those other groups that you mentioned, but this has been an extraordinary time in the last uh, year in particular. And I want people to know that I find that unacceptable, that we are not going to create a segregated society on the basis of a, of a medical choice. Now, I happen to think that that's exactly true. She didn't say the worst civil liberties bonfire in global history or even in Canada's history. I mean, you look at the Second World War and the Holocaust. If you look at atrocities throughout history, of course, the lockdowns of the last two years don't stack up. But in her lifetime, I mean, we've had civil rights in Canada. We've had gay rights in Canada for, what, 20 years or so. We've had, uh, in, in terms of equal marriage, I mean, what civil liberties, uh, atrocities or discriminations are there in Canada for women, for visible minorities, for gay people in her lifetime that are comparable to unvaccinated people being fired from their work banned from the public square, banned from restaurants, told they can't uh, get on airplanes, and just the lockdowns themselves, limiting weddings and funerals, closing churches. What Danielle Smith was one, said was 100% right. And her promise to add unvaccinated people to the list of protected grounds in the Human Rights Code, I think, is brilliant. The people who jumped on that are the same people who were the human rights abusers. If you accuse lockdown extremists and public health extremists and hypochondriacs and Munchausen by proxy public officers of being human rights violators, don't be surprised if they squawk at you for it. Don't be surprised if for the first time anyone's pushed back at them in two years, they're going to roar in outrage. It was expected that they would object to her, her categorizing their public policy as discrimination. Of course they did. That is not surprising at all. What was surprising and a little bit disappointing to me is that Danielle Smith bent the knee. She apologized and reached out and said she rededicates herself to anti-racism and tolerance. But what's that got to do with the fact that unvaccinated people were, as a matter of fact, banned from things that 
black people or uh, women or other minorities were not banned from. Now, black and other minorities who were unvaccinated had the same bullying. You know, when I look back at the sweep of Canadian history, I think, for example, the Japanese internment in British Columbia, which was atrocious, but it was more limited than in t- and it was both in in terms of uh, geography and class that was uh, that was an abomination to human rights there were other abominations to human rights but none of those were in our lifetime that was almost 100 years ago what danielle smith said was factually true and it was a reasonable opinion more to the point it's something that she essentially campaigned on of course, the establishment rejected it. But the fact that she apologized so quickly worries me, not just for the substance of it, but can she stand up to these vested interests? I'm pleased to say that Danielle Smith sacked the public health officer, Dina Hinshaw. Here's a clip of that. Good. So she's not afraid to take on the public health officer. She said she'll take on Alberta Health Services. Great. But can you not take on the commentariat who squawks because you point out the truth? The emperor has no clothes. It was a gross violation of our human rights. Don't take my word for it. Take it from the deposed premier, Jason Kenney, who when asked by Rebel News reporters about vaccine passports said those would violate the law. Here is Jason Kenney saying it would be a civil rights violation before he went along and violated those civil rights. Well, it happened once, but then it happened a second time. Danielle Smith, when she was a journalist, uh, gave her opinions on the war in Ukraine. Now, it's a very complicated situation, and it's somewhat dangerous, I suppose, for lay people to give their opinions on the subject. But she was a lay person. She was not premier. She was a journalist. It was in a call-in show. And she said two things. She said she thought, and she, she made these comments on TV, and she uh, tweeted them. She suggested that Ukraine perhaps ought to remain neutral, sort of like Finland. It's right next to Russia, doesn't want to be dominated by Russia, but it would be perhaps too provocative to join NATO. Now, does that sound like an extreme opinion? Well, it could be, but that just happens to be the opinion of Henry Kissinger, perhaps the uh, wisest or most experienced, you don't have to call him wise, but the most experienced uh, diplomat still living, advisor to various presidents. That's the view of many UK former diplomats. That's probably how this war is going to end, some sort of military neutrality for Ukraine. That's what Elon Musk is talking about. It's a legitimate point of view. To have Ukraine join NATO right abutting Russia would probably cause Russia to continue its invasion. I'm not saying that Danielle Smith is right, but I'm saying it's a legitimate point of view to have, especially for a journalist. She also mused about the fact that certain parts of Ukraine, especially in the East, are, uh, there are ethnic Russians there, some of whom actually would prefer to be part of Russia. Now, I'm not saying that the elections, the referendums in those parts um, were uh, fair and free elections. I mean, I don't have information about that. But even in, uh, in referendums uh, when Ukraine uh, seceded from the former Soviet Union, those parts, of those territories had lots of ethnic Russians who indicated they would rather be with Russia. Many of Ukraine's borders have changed over the years. Many of the cities and towns have both Ukrainian names and Russian names and Polish names. Borders have changed over the years. Again, I'm not saying that Danielle Smith's point is necessarily right, but there's enough factual truth to it that it's a valid opinion to have. Now, that was her opinion as a private journalist. 
The premier of Alberta is not a foreign policy expert. Foreign policy resides completely with the federal government. But here's my point again. Uh, she was pounced on by gotcha journalists, including Justin Ling, uh, an Ottawa freelancer who has who makes up claims all the time. He's, for example, famously wrote that the trucker convoy had weapons in their vehicles. That was later proven to be disinformation. The police said he made it up. He is a professional gotcha journalist based in Ottawa who writes a smear on a, an obscure blog criticizing Danielle Smith. But that was enough to provoke a chain of outrage that, again, caused Danielle Smith to issue a groveling apology that you can see here. Now, was Danielle Smith right or wrong on both of these issues? Well, I'm sympathetic to her view on the unvaccinated question. I think it's without a doubt that in, our, in the modern era, in our lifetimes, no one has been discriminated as much as unvaccinated people. It's just a fact. Black people are not, women are not, gay people are not. Maybe in centuries past, but not in our lifetimes. Danielle Smith was right. And as to the Ukraine question, I, I simply think there must be some peaceful outcome. I do not want nuclear war. And we can't even have a conventional war that goes on perpetually, that grinds down the infrastructure and the people of Ukraine. I know pundits want it and maybe arms dealers want it, but how many Ukrainians are going to die for this Western proxy war? I am opposed to the invasion by Vladimir Putin. Obviously, I believe in the territorial integrity of every country, including Ukraine. I think Vladimir Putin is a former KGB agent. He's likely a murderer. He's an authoritarian, quasi-dictator, and he's an imperialist. I'm opposed to his invasion of Ukraine, full stop. But that doesn't mean that uh, there should be total war until a total unconditional surrender of the Russian Federation. I just don't think that's going to happen. And when you're fighting against a conventional army, it's one thing. You can beat Russia's conventional army with American weapons, but he's got nuclear bombs, and he's talked about using them. I think we need to have some sort of diplomatic outcome to this unfortunate and outrageous war. I think that's what Danielle Smith was trying to say. She may be right or she may be wrong, but for her to issue a groveling apology as premier for something that she talked about as a private journalist is absurd. And if she continues doing that, if she continues accepting the premise that her critics are operating in good faith, that she as premier has to justify a decade worth of private journalism, she will not succeed. If she continues to bend the knee and to give credit to every accusation against her, it's simply she'll, she'll do nothing else. The... Uh, the vaccine enforcers, the media party, the NDP, the health establishment, any establishment she criticizes, they're always going to object to her. She has to embrace that and relish it and point to it as proof that she's over the target. If there's something she wrote six months or six years or 10 years ago in her journalism that looks like it's embarrassing today, she should say, look, that's when I was a journalist in the private sector. Now I speak for all Albertans as premier. I'm going to limit my comments to those things that have to do with my job as premier. And I may have a different position as premier than I had as an independent journalist. I think that's a believable answer. Many journalists go into politics, and it's absurd to go through 20 years of opinion columns and hold it around the neck of a premier, especially if it's frankly, a mainstream opinion. I think Danielle Smith has to change her approach to issues management. I think if she allows herself 
to dance to the tune of any bad faith journalist or NDP critic, I think she's going to be on the defense of so much and she will project an aura of weakness so much that she might actually do the unthinkable and for the second time give way to Rachel Notley as premier to put Alberta back under the NDP. Look, I'm here in Edmonton in part because last night we had a great unspooling of our documentary called Ungovernable. It's about Alberta independence. And uh, I'm here to stay for a few days because the United Conservative Party is having its annual general meeting. And I want to take the temperature of that group and see what people have to say. I think it's important that Alberta remain free and not succumb again to the NDP. I think it's important that Alberta take its proper place in confederation and not just be a punching bag for Justin Trudeau and his anti-Alberta crew. To do that, Danielle Smith needs to toughen up. And by toughen up, I mean sometimes when she's attacked, it's proof that she's doing the right thing. I think she should take a page out of Pierre Polyev's book and frankly not care what the pundits say and if anything, lean in and criticize them. If she allows the left-wing media party and the activist groups to define her agenda, I'm afraid she's going to lose. I'll keep you posted on this story in the weeks and months ahead, and I'll let you know how the AGM goes. Stay with me. We've got news ahead from our reporters who just came back from Berlin, Germany. in Edmonton on my ongoing journey, but it's no journey at all compared to the global jaunt taken by three on-air rebel journalists and two support journalists. We had a team of five people who went to the World Health Summit held in Berlin, Germany. What's the World Health Summit? Well, it is the meeting uh, co-sponsored by the United Nations World Health Organization with delegates from around the world. These are the people who basically were behind the global pandemic response, the vaccine mandates, the lockdowns, and none of them are elected by you. None of them are accountable to you. It's part of that globalist, undemocratic, deep state, the permanent bureaucracy. This is the group that China installed Tedros Adenum as the head of. He's not a medical doctor, but he calls himself doctor. And these are the folks who set the international agenda for the lockdowns. They have not had this global health summit meeting in three years because of the pandemic. This is their first get together. And we thought this would be a very interesting event for Rebel News to cover, even though it's halfway around the world. And in my mind, Drea Humphrey, Alexa Lavoie, and Tamara Ugolini are the Rebel News reporters most passionately associated with this story. They're the ones who have covered not only the lockdowns, but questions about the medical science, questions about the vaccines themselves, questions that are very difficult to ask in an era of censorship. And I knew that not only would these reporters show more skepticism and curiosity and have more knowledge than anyone in what I call the media party, I also knew that if any journalist even attended this event, they would just be stenographers repeating press releases and not asking tough questions at all. And you know what? I think I was right. Joining me now is Tamara Ugolini, our senior editor, who just got back last night at 11 p.m., returning from Berlin, Germany, where she was with the rest of the team. 
Tamara, great to see you again, and welcome back to Canada. You look pretty refreshed given the <laughs> enormous journey you're on and the jet lag. Great to see you back here. First of all, before we get into the details, tell me your impressions of the trip. If you're like me, you really weren't traveling, well, because you were on Trudeau's no-fly list. So I'm guessing this was your first trip outside the country in, in years. It was, yes, indeed. I was actually quite surprised at how smoothly the travel went from Pearson, and then we flew into Amsterdam. I flew anyway. I, we had all different flight paths, but I flew into Amsterdam, and even there, there you heard a lot of uh, rumblings and grumblings with travelers that that hub was very congested, and there was many time delays. I had some slight delay, but I was very surprised at how seamless and smooth the travel seemed to go. Um, but of course, I wasn't traveling in midst of the chaos. And by the time I returned, all the arrive can and travel related restrictions have been scrapped. So I was pleasantly surprised at just how quickly I could mosey on through, especially without any checked baggage. I think that made a huge difference there. Well, I'm glad it was easy. I can tell you that, uh, you know, with the masks and the arrive can app, which I never used, I never filled out. Um, you know, I'm just so glad that's removed. And it, it, Canada was really one of the last countries to remove those things. One last question on your travels. On the plane in Amsterdam, in Germany, are, they, are people still mask maniacs? Are people still crazy? Or was Canada really the last one to wise up to that stuff? So there's two parts to that. On the plane, barely anyone was masked. There were a few true believers and one person with, uh, I, I, it might have been a gas mask. I'm not even sure um, what sort of technical high-grade mask this one individual was wearing. But for the most part, no one was wearing masks. And that includes in Amsterdam and in Germany. However, in Germany itself on public transit, so not including flights for whatever reason, but on the tram itself, and, and, and supposed to be in taxis and Ubers as well. You're supposed to wear masks. Uh, we did not. One, there was one incident where the police came on board to enforce and check the mask mandate. And, you know, they just they just passed around masks to the five of us who weren't wearing masks. And, you know, they pulled out, they pulled five masks out of their pockets and handled them and opened them up and then gave them to us as though this was supposed to be, you know, hygienic and clean and scientific. Um, and then we put them on and I... I have a mask exemption. I didn't have it with me, but I do have a formal uh, medical mask exemption. So I just put the mask on underneath my nose and, you know, they were quick to, to move on. So you can kind of see that there are still some restrictions that remain in place that some people are really clinging to. And for whatever reason in Germany, it's this idea that on the tram is when you have to mask up. But even there, um, they repeated over the loudspeaker. But I would say only approximately 90, 80 to 90% of the people frequenting the train itself were wearing masks at any given time. You know, it's very clearly a classist thing. I mean, uh, the working classes can wear the masks and those in business class don't have to. All right. Well, it's good to chat with you about the journey. But of course, the journey was to serve a purpose, and that was to go to this World Health Summit. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, what I know about the World Health Organization is the UN agency. China basically runs it through their uh, boss, Dr. Tedros. I call him doctor with little asterisk because he's not a medical doctor. Imagine being the boss the World Health Organization and not actually being a medical doctor. Um, 
So basically, countries around the world have delegates there. So, and this was the first meeting of the delegates, and I presume the pandemic was on the forefront of their mind. That's all my guess is you were there. Tell me what it was actually like. That's right. I mean, the, the amount of, of topics and information that they cover over three solid days of conferences, and then in addition to the main program event, uh, which sees countless amounts of conferences happening every day, some many of them at the same time each day. So there's a, a big overlap there, but there's the keynote speakers. Then there's the sort of side speeches that happen or side conferences. And then there's also an additional a, a number of side events. So for any one person to cover this conference in its entirety would be next to impossible. I'm really glad that we had three journalists on the ground there and two videographers, but even that, you, you could never make it into each one of these conferences and each one are about an hour and a half in length. And that's to say if they don't go over, which I find that typically they do. So the, the basis of um, this particular summit, and I have the booklet here that they were handing out, which, I mean, if we want to talk about climate change and saving the trees. Uh, they had hundreds of these books on the tables that they were giving away, has all the program outline, the speakers, and the various topics. Huge components here, of course, are the digitization of health, um, the food security, energy, and uh, future pandemic response, so that pandemic preparedness plan. But one thing that I noticed that was really interesting, and this is another separate printout that they had, again, hundreds of these, um, is this little magazine here. So it's called Health, A Political Choice. And it's also about investing in health for all. So there was a huge financial component in this particular summit, research and development, Big Pharma, Moderna, Pfizer, they played a key role in many of these conferences. And again, as you've mentioned, before, Ezra, a vast majority of the speakers are unelected, random bureaucrats or lobbyists or sales representatives that come together. And it's really an opportunity for them to rub shoulders with one another. So this isn't so much necessarily about the conferences themselves that take place with the delegated and designated speakers, but rather the mingling opportunities that happen in between. And so when we first arrived, we recognized that the security was very um, intense, but there was some wiggle room there. So there were several protests that took place throughout the duration of the three days. Um, prior to the kickoff of the events, there was some individuals protesting Tedro specifically and some claims against him um, in, in regards to some ethnic genocide and ethnic cleansing that he's being accused of by the Tigra um, people. And then there was just other individuals protesting the World Health Organization as a whole. And those protests took place very small numbers every day. But on the first day, the kickoff of the World Health Summit, there was a far left radical group that infiltrated the front of the of Hotel Berlin and they protested. I would say there was approximately 30 30 to 40, maybe 50 at the very most individuals. And so they glued themselves to both the windows of the entrance and the pavement out front. They swiftly uh, glued posters and various um, information posters onto also the windows of the hotel. And at least one protester infiltrated the building and pulled the fire alarm on three separate occasions until they were finally able to locate this individual and a bunch of them were subsequently arrested. 
so after that took place, the security became much more tightened up and uh, there was a heavy police presence, German police, and a lot more strict monitoring of the building itself. So we knew that it would be difficult to get into the summit, but we didn't want to just watch from the sidelines. You know, previously I'd covered um, the World Health Assembly that took place in the spring of this year. And all I could do was watch the live streams digitally from afar. And, you know, they say some some very outlandish things that are worth noteworthy to report on. However, being in there, so we were finally able to get inside the building and, and be very stealth in our presence there. And that was only made possible by booking a room at this swanky hotel Berlin for hundreds of dollars just for the one night. And because of that reservation, we were able to come into the building and, and truly be and mingle in like the top 1%. It was an extremely exhilarating experience and no one was any wiser to our presence mm. there. You said so many interesting things. The first thing is that when you said there were protesters for one second, I thought, oh, maybe it's people who were protesting the lockdowns. Maybe it's people who were protesting the forced vaccines. But no, it was just some rent-a-mob climate uh, change activists. Is that what you're saying? Like it wasn't yes, even exactly. on point with the, that's crazy. Although there were, as and you say, that those ethnic uh, people who, who claimed that Tedros committed uh, uh, racial atrocities in his home country. That's very interesting that they were there too. Mm -hmm. And one thing it's, that I think it's important to note about these protesters is that they basically stated that the World Health Organization and this global, uh, this World Health Summit was not discussing climate change. And that if they had access to the program, which anyone can access online through the World Health Summit website, they do discuss climate change quite in depth. And there are many conferences that are, that are centered around the topic of climate change. And one thing that they don't discuss, however, which is where I started to ask some questions to both some of the attendees and some people outside when before we were kicked off the property on the third day, is why they aren't discussing the harms that the policies that the World Health Organization has instituted and put the hammer down onto their member states with, why those failed policy pandemic response plans aren't being discussed at all. No one seems to be discussing the harms caused by lockdowns, the harms done to children by masking them indiscriminately, and the increasingly alarming scale of excess deaths we're seeing on a global scale. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to get back to, you mentioned pharma salesmen. I can only imagine, I mean, I'm here in Edmonton because I'm going to a political get together, an annual general meeting of a political party. And it's been a little while since I've been to those, but um, there's always hospitality suites where this campaign or that lobby group spends thousands of dollars, basically giving free hors d'oeuvres and liquor to any political people just to bend their ears and get some influence and win friends. And, you know, you really feel the salesmanship at these conferences. And, and to your point, there's the formal events, but then there's the mingling and the parties. I want to ask you, because you, you made me think about political parties and how everyone's trying to schmooze and lobby them. Pfizer, Moderna, the other vaccine companies that have made tens of billions of dollars did they sponsor things? Did they have hospitality suites? Were they giving away gift bags and swag? Um, or were they actually even embedded in the conference itself with formal speeches? What was the role of Big Pharma at this gathering? 
So it appears to be all of the above. We have a nice uh, photo and some generic video capture of all of the sponsors of the event itself. And I believe on the last page of this booklet as well, uh, which I can send later, it outlines all of the sponsors, which includes, as I already mentioned, heavy big pharma presence there. Mm. Um, some of the more high level attendees were kept very secret. So it was funny to see actually in the event itself, there was also two classes of citizens there. There was sort of these general attendees that could rub shoulders and schmooze and mingle. And then there was also the high level level attendees, which were kept more behind closed doors, very secured in the far uh, corner of the hotel in this restaurant that had been reserved out for the entire duration of the summit that no one was able to get gain access to all of the windows were papered up the doors were locked and you couldn't see who was coming or going from that space specifically we tried to see what that was about and perhaps get some dessert and we were told very quickly that this was for high level attendees only and it was strictly closed to anyone else so you saw the two class of citizens there, but also uh, there was uh, people who I saw, you know, there was Moderna, Pfizer, there was the Abbott, Panbio, many representatives from that testing kit company, the test developers. Um, they had, there was lawyers, there was general doctors, very heavily, heavy German presence, of course, being in Berlin. A lot of the attendees were from the German bureaucracy, German hospitals, um, there was over 3,000 attendees. So it was a lot of people to take in. And again, there was very some divide there between who the general attendees were, who are still high level, but then there was the high, high level, like Tedros yeah. and uh, Bill Gates and Olaf Bill Scholz, Gates, who's eh? the chancellor. Oh, really? Bill Gates. So Bill Gates... We didn't see him directly. Uh, he was a speaker at the keynote ceremony, the opening ceremony on the first day, and he attended via Zoom or Skype. He he was digitally prepared. So I'm not sure if he was in another room somewhere in the hotel or if he didn't end up attending at all. But um, yeah, th those key players, and you can see that if you check out the opening ceremony on the very first day, you know, those individuals up on that stage there that night, those are the ones who are pulling the strings for the health of you and I. Hmm. Um, let me ask you about uh, the the interviews you did because you, you say you sort of got into the room by booking. Uh, I mean, we put you guys in an Airbnb for reasons of economy, but you guys managed to get into the hotel itself um, by booking a room and then getting to mingle amongst the delegates. I can imagine um, that if you came across as any reporter, they might be a little more shy to talk. And if you came across as a skeptical reporter, they would be even more shy. Um, without giving too much away, because I know you got some special videos that we're going to be rolling out in the weeks ahead. Tell me a little bit about what it was like being a reporter at a place designed not to have public scrutiny, designed to basically be an insider's club. And then, as you say, with even within the insider's, there's sort of the inner insiders. But what was it like just trying to ask skeptical questions of people who really have never, never been asked a tough question in their life? So it was funny because we actually took it from the lens that we were in full belief that all of these policy responses were the best approach to use and that they, you know, saved lives and didn't cause any harms. And so... We, 
undercover and we had two teams working undercover. So I can only speak for what I saw myself, but we saw that feigning ignorance led to many of the people that we spoke to really being shocked that we were ignorant or at least, you know, pretending to be ignorant to the fact that these responses, so the lockdowns, the masking, the vaccines were causing such great harms. And we were pretending to be surprised when the individuals that we were speaking to were telling us information, you know, we knew from the beginning that the lockdowns were harmful. We're seeing the devastation to the development of children from the this prolonged and indiscriminate masking. And of course, we're seeing that the advice to never vaccinate during a pandemic was based on science and evidence. And we don't know why that was ever disregarded. So there's a lot here. We have three full days of coverage um, undercover with various conversations with various people from different walks of life and different expertise. And so we're basically just compiling at this point and reviewing and seeing the easiest way to get this out to the public in the public interest in a way that's easy to digest and concise for um, publishing. Well, that's incredible. Congratulations to you. I look forward to those undercover vids. Um, folks, if you want to see all the work that our dream team did, go to rebelwho.com. We'll still have videos being uploaded there for the next week at least. Uh, Tamara, uh, wrap up our segment here by throwing to a video of your choice. Is there a video that you or your colleagues did from Berlin already that you're particularly proud of or that you think sums up uh, what the conference was all about? That you'd like to show our viewers? Well, uh, it's hard to choose just one. I, of course, we'll have a three days worth of a general overview coming out. So day one, day two, day three. I got the opportunity to point a lockdown specific question to the Director General Tedros Adaman Gabriasis. So everyone should check out that really quick 25 second clip. You have to speak so quickly and on your toes and be ready at a moment's notice. Literally, I turned around and he was there. So um, check out that clip. And also Drea, my, my colleague from British Columbia, Drea Humphrey, did a wonderful segment asking the bureaucrats out front of the Berlin Hotel, what they thought about Pfizer and its admittance that they never actually tested their vaccine and its capability to reduce transmission. So that video is doing really well and was really well done by Drea. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. So yes, as Ezra said, please stay tuned at rebelwho.com because we have so much more to share. Well, you've done an amazing job. Thank you for going on such a long journey. And I know you have a wonderful family at home. I'm grateful to them for letting you uh, leave them and go across the world for a week. But I think you did great stuff. We will leave you with those two videos that Tamara just described, her first brief encounter with Dr. Tedros and then the Drea video in question. And then I'll come back with some final thoughts. Great to see you safe and sound back in Canada, Tamara. Thanks very much. Tamara Ugolini here with Rebel News, and I am in Germany at the swanky Berlin Hotel in Central District, where the World Health Summit 2022 is taking place in partnership with the World Health Organization. I've just asked the Director General of the WHO, that's the controversially appointed bureaucrat Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, a question regarding the global lockdown policies his organization implemented at his direction. The risk of returning to lockdown remains very real 
if countries do not manage the transition. The only way I was able to bring you this report was by reserving one night at this posh hotel because our media accreditation was rejected by the World Health Summit controllers. And none of this trip, including this fancy one-night stay, would be possible without your generous donations to rebelwho.com. If you think that it is crucial to hold these bureaucrats to account for their failed and devastating policies, then head on over to that website and help offset our costs, again at rebelwho.com. Now, after arriving at the hotel, I was able to get a feel for the crowd after what looked like some sort of cozy setting of high tea and refreshments. I turned around and there was Tedros. Have a look at how that went. Okay, Mr. Tedros, are you how, are you? how are you? Mr. Tedros? <laughs> if you could do lockdowns again, would you would you do them? If you could do lockdowns again, would you support them? I'm sorry. What, what time is it Mr. Tedros, please. If you could do lockdowns again, would you support them? That's what you get for unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats heading in there to the WHO conference, the World Health Summit. Tedros was nervously laughing behind his medical mask. As you can see, his handler quickly got in the way once she realized that I was skeptical of his failed lockdown mandates. He obviously had no idea how to respond. What do you think at home? Should these bureaucrats be held responsible for their failed policies that have resulted in grotesque harm of people all across the globe with looming economic devastation, loss of liberty, and loss of freedom? And if no one is here to ask the hard questions, then how will the public ever know? Follow our reports as we try to show you how the top 1% wines and dines while you're told to shutter your business, stay home endlessly, all for the alleged greater good. For Rebel News, I'm Tamara Ugolini. In case you haven't gotten familiar with our special site called rebelwho.com, which is going to keep you up to date on what we're doing in Germany, which is getting to the bottom of the agendas being pushed by big pharma globalists across the world. We've come all the way here to cover the World Health Summit for you guys so that you don't have to play catch up with what's coming next like we've done over the next two years. And thank you for those who have started to chip in to help us recoup the costs. Again, the special site we have where you can do that as well is called rebelwho.com. And we really appreciate you guys supporting our journalism so we can bring you stories like what we're about to talk about today. We are going to see who we can interview on their way into this fancy schmancy award ceremony before the kickoff of the World Health Summit. I want to ask them a couple of questions. If they're coming here to support and be a part of this World Health Organization event, what do they think about none of the events that are being in place having anything to do with harms of lockdowns that millions, if not billions, of people have been experiencing over the last two years? Also, Mr. Bill Gates is going to be here. We all saw his face on every screen, so many news telling us that the only way to beat COVID-19 would be for everyone to get vaccinated, as well as to have some sort of digital certificate kind of thing. Take a look at this. And so until you're widely vaccinated, those may not uh, come back uh, at all. Eventually, what we'll have to have is certificates of who's a recovered person, who's a vaccinated person, because you don't want 
people moving around the world. So eventually there will be sort of this digital uh, immunity proof uh, that you know, will help facilitate the global reopening up. Now you and I saw that come to fruition. We saw vaccines that had no long-term studies be rolled out and mandates at that where people lost their jobs and turned against each other about who had the injection and who didn't. But another thing that has come out in news through Europe actually is that part of those vaccines, at least from Pfizer, their mRNA shot, there wasn't even any testing done to show whether or not those vaccines that were rolled out to millions, if not billions of people, were in fact able to stop transmission. In a COVID hearing in the European Parliament, one of the Pfizer directors just admitted to me, at the time of introduction, the vaccine had never been tested on stopping the transmission of the virus. This removes the entire legal basis for the COVID passport the COVID passport that led to massive institutional discrimination as people lost access to essential parts of society. I find this to be shocking. That I didn't see looked at is perhaps maybe the things over the last two years that we maybe could have learned from, like the lockdowns and the other side of it, maybe some of the harms that it caused to business, economies and things like that. What's your guys' thoughts on that? I, I think that it depends on how you look at it, from the perspective you're coming from. Definitely no one likes lockdown. But in the event where there was a pandemic where we didn't have knowledge about it, there was no nothing. It was just new to us. Everyone, everyone went into a panic mood. We were looking for the best option. And it was just to contain people. So at that moment, that seemed like the best option. Later on, it, when we reflect on it, probably we should have done things better. But at that moment, I think that it was probably fit for perfect. So, yeah. In Italy, you know, we were the first entering into the lockdown. Yeah. So there is a discussion of how to deal in the future. But I think preparedness is the most important. So, you know, companies and, uh, you know, governments now should be more prepared in the future. But preparedness means also that you have to be prepared for pathogens that you don't know yet, but will appear in the future. So this requires a lot of, you know, collaboration between politicians and, uh, you know, health systems. There wasn't anything about sort of the other side to lockdowns, like losing jobs and businesses. Do you think that that should be represented in this event? No, you got to focus on one thing. I think they're What's more that? focusing on solutions. They are not on the victims and on the um, disadvantages they brought. And so, what solutions do you think are most important to focus on? Vaccination and developing of new uh, products. The cost of the measures, uh, counter measures of COVID. That is a very good question. I think that as time goes by, when we we're no longer so afraid, we will see the cost of, for instance, closing down schools. And, and be more reluctant in, in closing so much, uh, so quickly and so long in the, the next time it hits us. Recently, we found out through Pfizer in Europe, it came out that before the vaccines were rolled out, they never did any testing to see that if it stopped transmission or not. And that brings up the concerns of maybe informed consent. What's your thoughts on that? I wouldn't say that I'm an expert in the intricacies of clinical trials and all that and what really happened in COVID. but. What I know, because we work with in terms of clinical development and research, is that before a product comes, definitely there's some due diligence that is done. So it might be erroneous to think that that wasn't done. I don't know the details of where you're coming from, but I think that um, a lot of things were sped up. 
probably if we took our time we'd see something more we don't know but a lot of things were spread up and were, they were from institutions that we have trusted for so long so i think that sometimes you should give them the due diligence and think that they did the right thing i mean but at the end of the day when we sit down post recovery we need to look at assess the things that we did if there's anything we did which um, we did which wasn't good and we need to do it better why yeah, not yeah exactly i know bill gates is expected to be here i think maybe he's involved with the opening ceremonies and things like that he was a big voice at the beginning of the rollout with covid-19 and he told the world that to get through it we needed to get a vaccine and also a digital certificate and then we saw things like vaccine mandates go about so given that Perhaps they, there was no proof that these stopped transmission and they rolled out mandates that some people lost their jobs from and things like that. What are your thoughts on that issue? Briefly, I'll say that as much as possible when it's a pandemic, we are looking for solutions. But I also think that we are dealing with people. So we should never forget that human aspect of it. Yeah. And that's all I can say. And, and if you think about the time it took to develop a vaccine in one year, it's unheard of. Yeah? Yeah. And... Um, of course, there's always room for better. Yeah, so you're right, it was unheard of, which I think some people found it uneasy that they were supposed to take it to maybe save their job. Uh, do you guys support that's a, that's a, that? That's a, hard, that's a difficult thing. I think uh, developing a vaccine and making it available is one thing. Forcing people, it's iffy. I mean, but, but again, it's, it's a case-by-case -case situation. Now that two years has passed with living with COVID-19, what is your guys' opinions on sort of the human rights side of things when it comes to vaccine mandates? For me, I would say let's increase the knowledge and acknowledgement that technology is advancing very fast. Not only technology, but also the linkage to legalization of things, testing and everything else. We already know what viruses look like. We already know how to genome type them. We already know how to test them in the laboratory to see if they are safe or not. And therefore, the point of human rights, you should also check, is this saving lives? Is any delay going to kill more people? Which one would you rather save? I think there is no doubt that vaccine is effective in reducing the, the severity of the disease. Not, the, not in catching it, but in reducing the severity. And as for the human rights question, I think that, that, the question, that the vaccine, all vaccinations should be voluntary. That has, in, at least in Norway, that has been really essential for the trust for that, that uh, you can choose to take a vaccine or not, and, it, and you do it for your own good. All right, anything else you wanted to add? Yes, first of all, I answered that not because I am in a certain role, I answered as just a human. So this is not a voice of the country I represent here. Well, we didn't get here in fancy black Mercedes. We hustled through public transit and walked to get here. And we flew in economy class and we're living in an Airbnb. I'm thankful for the roof over my head, but there may or may not have been quite the leak the other night. But all of that is so we can bring you the news. And we hope that you will support us in doing so by going to rebelwho.com and donating what you can to make sure we can bring you reports just like the one you just saw. Dre Humphrey for Rebel News. See you guys in the next report at rebelwho.com.
Well, I'm on the road here in Edmonton. As you can see, it's uh, not perfectly ideal. I don't have the studio behind me, but I, I hope you appreciate my comments on Danielle Smith. Look, obviously, I do not support the war on Ukraine. I think it's imperialism on the behalf of Putin, and it's very telling that Putin only invaded Ukraine when Trump was on in office. He invaded Ukraine in 2014 when Obama was around. Then he invaded Ukraine in 2022 when Biden was there. And Biden, of course, is up to his eyeballs in corruption with Ukraine, including his son, Hunter. I won't get into that right now. I'm against that war, but neither do I want nuclear war to come from it. And I think it's thoughtful to think, how can this end without total surrender or total war? When you have a cornered authoritarian bully, as Vladimir Putin is, who has nuclear weapons, uh, if his conventional weapons aren't working and he is rattling his saber about nuclear weapons, I think it's wise to say, how might this finish other than in a puff of smoke? And for Danielle Smith to muse about that in her private capacity as a journalist, I don't think is disqualifying at all. I think for her to treat these accusations as serious good faith accusations, well, if she does that, she's going to be very, very busy dancing to the drum of her opponents. Those are my thoughts for today. Thanks for joining us from our Western outpost in a hotel in Edmonton to you at home. Good night and keep fighting for freedom. Why is the Chinese Communist Party operating police stations in Canada? All right, have a good day, sir. I'm on my way to an event. Do you agree, yes or no, that China is operating communist police stations in our sovereign country of Canada? Do you agree? Alright, I'll take that as a yes. So, is the reason why you do support it because your boss, Justin Trudeau, has a deep admiration for China's basic dictatorship? Hey everyone, William Diaz here with Rebel News. Chinese Communist Party. Not the best party, right? Well, we recently learned that the Chinese Communist Party has installed three police stations that are operating here in Canada in the Grand Toronto area. Unbelievable. That's really not good for Canadian sovereignty. So I went to Parliament Hill yesterday and I asked Liberal MPs, why are they allowing China to operate police stations here in our country, in Canada? Could it be because Justin Trudeau has stated his admiration for China's basic dictatorship? Take a look at what he said. There's a level of, of uh, admiration I actually have for China. Um, because their you know, basic dictatorship is allowing them uh, to actually turn their economy around on a dime. In addition to that, I wanted to know whether or not Liberal MPs would push for Justin Trudeau's resignation if it is found in the Emergencies Act inquiry that he invoked the never-seen-before Emergencies Act unjustifiably and unnecessarily. So let's go see how all of them respond. Mr. Aljabra, how are you doing? Can you explain to Canadians why the Chinese Communist Party is operating police stations here in Canada? You're a little bit less spicy than last time. Can you explain why the Chinese Communist Party is operating police stations in Canada? Could it be because Justin Trudeau has an admiration for the Chinese Communist Party? Do you think that's it? 
why is the Chinese Communist Party operating police stations in China, Mr. Al Shaba? Alright, last thing, if Justin, if it's found by the Emergencies Act inquiry that Justin Trudeau involved the Emergencies Act unjustified in an unjustified manner and unnecessarily, will you push for his resignation? Will you? Have a nice day. Mr. Mendocino, why is the Chinese Communist Party operating police stations in Canada? Why is the Chinese Communist Party operating police stations in Canada? Right, have a good day, sir. Miss Miss Anand, why is the Chinese Communist Party of Canada operating police stations in Canada? Uh, Chinese, uh, the Chinese Communist Party of China operating police stations in Canada. Sorry. What steps will you take to make sure the police stations in Canada will go back to China? Or do you agree with the fact that they're here because your leader has a deep admiration for uh, the communism in China? Can you answer? I'm on my way to an event. Do you agree, yes or no, that China is operating communist police stations in our sovereign country of Canada? Do you agree? Perfect, have a good day. Oh, you're screwing here. Do you agree, yes or no? Will you push for Justin Trudeau's resignation if it is found that he used the Emergencies Act uh, unnecessarily? Will you push for his resignation? Alright, have a good day, ma'am. Garrett Scene. There are three police stations from China and Canada. Do you care about Canadian sovereignty? Who are you? I'm with Rebel News. Of course I care about Canadian sovereignty, and I'm unaware of any uh, information that suggests what you're talking about. There are multiple reports of mainstream media here in Canada saying that we have three police stations operating in Canada. David Menzies did a little investigation himself. Take a look. It has made the news in several media outlets that there are actually Chinese police stations operating on Canadian soil, two in Markham and one in Scarborough that we know of. And one of the overseas Chinese police stations is based here at the Canada-Toronto Fuking Business Association. Why don't we just go and make another house call and see if anyone's home? As you can see, the door is locked. Now I, I, I see a monitor on. But so far, nothing. Mr. Lloyd, what are your thoughts on the Chinese Communist Party operating police stations in Canada? Oh, it's absolutely unacceptable. Yep. Yep. Well, what actions can the Conservative Party take to remedy the situation? Well, I think uh, we're doing everything we can to call on the government to use its governmental authority to take action on this issue and protect Canadian sovereignty. Sir, why is the Chinese Communist Party operating police stations in Canada? 
Does the Liberal Party agree about the fact and think it's okay that the Communist Party in China is operating police stations, three of them, here in Canada? Do you think it's good? Do you care about the Canadian sovereignty? You were more talkative last time that I saw you, but I guess because you already had an answer. So I'll ask you again. Do you agree and are you proud of having the Chinese Communist Party operating police stations here in Canada? I'll take that as a yes. So, so is the reason why you are okay with that because your boss has a deep admiration for the basic dictatorship in China? Is that why the Liberal Party is fine with it? Is that why? All right, have a good day, sir. Take care. <laughs> Only question answered. <laughs> Ms. Thompson, why is the Chinese Communist Party operating police stations in Canada? Can you answer? Why is the Communist Party in China putting Canadian sovereignty at risk and operating police stations in Canada? Do you agree with uh, what they're doing? Do you support the fact that China is operating communist police stations in Canada? All right, I'll take that as a yes. So is the reason why you do support it because your boss, Justin Trudeau, has a deep admiration for China's basic dictatorship. Is that why? All right, have a good day, ma'am. Sir, why are they, why is the Chinese Communist Party operating police stations in Canada? Mr. Gerritsen. Why did you spend more time on Twitter than working for your constituents? If you think that's the case, you're spending too much time on Twitter. So there you have it, folks. Here's what uh, Liberal MPs had to say about the situation. But as we saw, as we expected, they're not the most talkative. Dane Lloyd also spoke to us about uh, what the Conservative Party is trying to do to make sure that this situation is resolved as soon as possible. Thank you for watching. This is William Diaz here with Rebel News. If you want to stay up to date with everything that is taking place in relation to the Trucker Commission to the Emergencies Act inquiry, please sign on to truckercommission.com and there you can see all of our great content straight from Ottawa.